Galatians 1, 11 to 24. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, this Sunday that we can gather here and uh, glorify your name, Father. And I pray that if there are any distractions, anything on our hearts, that we would just surrender those things to you now and give those things to you, Father. Um, pray that you would speak through Kevin and that you would give us a spirit of re revelation and wisdom. You would enlighten the eyes of our heart, that we would hear your word. Uh, and be moved by it and see its beauty, Lord. But we praise you and glorify you that you are made strong in our weakness and that you're exalted in our in hum in humble us in um, in our weakness, Lord. And we praise you and love you and pray all this in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, good morning. Welcome back. I know a lot of us. Uh, we're at a wedding last night, so glad some of you guys can make it back. Uh, I noticed some other people were up in South Carolina for a wedding this weekend, so it must have been a popular weekend to get married. Uh, welcome to Aletheia. Uh, this is your first time. My name's Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, really glad you could be here with us this morning um, as we uh, head into our second week of studying um, the book of Galatians. And we'll be We'll be in the book of Galatians up through May, so um, it'll coincide really well with the uni university calendar um, this year. Uh, we will take a couple weeks off around Easter time. We'll do a special Easter series that'll last about three weeks, and I, I wanted to go ahead and kind of put this on the radar now, especially for you students who tend to, to run out of town on Easter weekend. Um, Easter's a great time to invite unbelieving classmates, friends, co-workers, neighbors, apartment suite mates, you know, whatever your current context is, it's a great time to both share the gospel and invite someone to church because Easter is still kind of a cultural phenomenon here in the U.S. And so I would highly, highly recommend if you have the opportunity to stay in Gainesville. And if I know, I remember when I was a college student, my mom was like, you're not coming back for Easter, you know? You know, and she'd you know, give that sob story and now we don't even go back for Christmas because... She lives in Virginia, and it's cold, and I live in Florida now, and that's just not happening. But there is the opportunity for you to instill say, instead say, hey, I, you know, I'm, 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 I'm in Gainesville for 25, 30 weeks a year. It's where my primary ministry is. Why don't you guys come up and celebrate Easter with us at, at my church in Gainesville so that I can invite friends, classmates, neighbors to church that Sunday so that they might have an opportunity to hear the gospel. Because this will be one of probably two times all year that we can invite a friend and they'll, they'll take it seriously and, and maybe hear what's going on. So I would invite you to put that on your calendar and plan to try to stay in Gainesville that weekend for Easter. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn over to Galatians chapter 1. We're going to finish up chapter 1 this morning. It's kind of funny. Or we're gonna, we, did, we started last week. And we're going to finish up chapter 1, and then I've got five months to do five more books of the Bible, uh, five more books in the book of Galatians, right? 
And so um, I don't have a lot of time to review this morning because we have quite a few verses um, that, that, we, that we need to get through, but I want to get caught up to speed on what we talked about a little bit last week, because really what we did last week is we laid a, a pretty firm foundation on what the book of Galatians is and what Paul was trying to communicate. And so I want, if you missed last week, um, I want to give you guys an opportunity to understand where we're coming from as we kind of continue throughout this book. And we won't do this every week, but the first couple of weeks I'll at least try to highlight a few things of where we're going and what Paul's trying to do. And so to put it, to put it frankly, right, Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia is about the gospel. And what I mean by that is it's Paul's attempt to make sure you and I, and and really, in reality, his readers at the churches in southern Galatia, to have them understand the full weight of, of what it means to believe and have placed our trust in the finished work of Christ. See, these churches that Paul had started in his, in his second missionary journey, um, were, were taught the good news about what Christ had done for them, and they gladly accepted it. And so what Paul typically did when he started out on a missionary journey is he would move into a city, he would plant a church, he would share the gospel, he would establish leadership at that church, and then he would kind of move on. And then what he would often do is many of the, the letters that we have in the New Testament are Paul it is Paul writing letters back to those leaders, kind of explaining to them issues they're dealing with in the church, um, exhortations to establish more leadership or plant more churches, exhortations to repent of sin and continue to walk in the faithfulness of what they had been taught. And what we saw last week when we looked at those first 10 verses is what Paul immediately does is he kind of greets them and then he immediately goes back to the gospel message of what he taught them when he was first in their churches. Right? And that was this, that, that we as human beings are hopelessly lost. There, there's, there's, not a, there's not a, oh, I think human beings are kind of like inherently good and we just do some bad things. No, Paul kind of said in his opening greeting that, that we are hopelessly lost, but that Jesus, right, in his mercy and love for the world and for mankind, gave himself for our sins so that we might be rescued. And so he in his greeting, laid out this beautiful articulation that you and I, there's no middle ground, that we are hopelessly lost apart from God, but that God in his love and mercy came on a rescue mission to save us through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And that the Father accepted the Son's work, and because of that, you and I are invited into community and relationship with him. Something that is not extended to us apart from the finished work of Christ on the cross. Right? And so we kind of like looked at that and we said, okay, we want to start with a good framework of just what is the gospel. We don't want to defile it with anything else. We don't want to add anything to it. We just want to understand what did Paul preach when he first went into these churches? And he laid that out for them very, very quickly in his opening greeting to them. And see, the problem is, is Paul has to do this because the churches of Galatia have walked into this time period where they're dealing with some pretty heavy theological issues that are foundational to what the church believes and what they need to believe moving forward. See, what had happened is some people from, from the Jerusalem area of, the, of where the church had started had moved up into this region after Paul had planted these churches. And what had happened is these churches gladly received that message I just explained to you when Paul was there. But then when these new teachers moved in, what they did is they began to pervert it. They took that gospel message saying, you are hopelessly lost. Your only hope is in the finished work of Christ and God accepting what Christ has done. And they took that message and they said, okay, we believe that, but we're going to add something else to it. We're going to say, Jesus plus something else is what saves us. Jesus plus something else is what is good enough for us. And, And so the Galatian churches were turning from Paul's original teaching. And, and here's the reality, and we talked about this at length last week, that many of us do this. Right? We may not struggle with the same like, cultural and exact issues that the churches of Galatia were doing, but we, all, all of us tend to pervert the gospel in one of two ways. Whether you've been a believer for five minutes, whether you're here this morning and you don't even know why you're in church this morning, but someone invited you this morning and so you're here and you're like, I, don't even, I haven't been to church like ever. Why am I here this morning? Who, who is this Jesus that you're talking about? Or whether you've been a Christian for 45, 50 years. 
that all of us as human beings kind of tend to per- pervert or change or turn the truth about what Jesus did in one of two directions. And that's either this. We, we walk in what we would call licentiousness, where we run away from the commands and the obedience that God calls us to. And we, we say, okay, Jesus died for my sins. I can live and do whatever I want. Right? And that's a perversion of what Christ has done because it's not lovingly accepting the sacrifice of what he's done for us and then obediently responding to him in repentance and faith and trusting that the Holy Spirit will grant you the power to walk forward in victory over sins that have enslaved you for years. Or if you don't tend to walk in this one, and I think this is far more common for those of us that grew up in the church or for those of us that have been believers for any season or period of time, we tend to walk in legalism. And that's where we take something good, whether it's a discipline, whether it's something we know about God to be true, knowledge, service, anything else, and we take those things and we add them to the gospel of Christ. And we would say things like, yes, Jesus died for my sins, but I'm not, it's not really good enough unless I'm being obedient to him as well. Or, yes, Jesus died for my sins, and I, I freely accept that and want that, but it's not good enough unless I'm having enough time in my devotionals with the Lord. If I'm not serving in my church, if I'm not you know, participating in certain things that God might have called me to do. And so we tend to walk in that, and the churches of Galatia were doing the same thing. See, what had happened, and we'll learn this more once we get into chapter 2, is that there was a group of people called the Judaizers who were coming into the church saying, yes, what Jesus did for you saves you, but then you must convert to Judaism to fully walk as a follower of Jesus. And so if you're a male, you need to be circumcised, you need to go through the ceremonial cleansing, you need to go through the proselytization of what happens to non-Jewish Gentiles to become a Jew, so that you can really receive the full atoning sacrifice of what Jesus did. And Paul, right, remember this? He uses some really strong language. Like if you're familiar with any of Paul's other letters, he tends to like, kind of like in the beginning of his letters, be like, hey, it's Paul. What's up, guys? It's good to see you. I love you. Jesus loves you too. We're praying for you. I pray for you often. I'm excited about you all the time. I can't wait to send someone to you. I want to get back and visit you. And when we read this letter, though, he kind of lays out the gospel. He says, hey, this is Paul. Just want to let you know who it is. Then he immediately says this, I am astonished that you guys have turned to something other than what I taught you when I was there. He doesn't give them any fluff. He doesn't give them any of the, the excitement or whatever is going on. He's, he says, look, I was your pastor. I established leadership in your churches. And you have made an absolutely ridiculously foolish trade in leaving the freedom in Christ that I preach to you to run to slavery again, which is what you were under before we came and shared the gospel to you. And so what he's going to do this morning is we're going to shift a little bit this morning and chapters 1 and 2 are going to be a more biographical approach to who Paul is. Basically what he's going to do is he's going to share his testimony of how how Jesus changed his life. And how, how when Jesus changed his life, it drastically changed the course and action that his life was on, right? And drastically changed thousands of other people's lives, right? And then after this biographical account in chapters 1 and 2 of Galatians and, and chapters 3 and 4, we're going to get into more some of the heavy theology and heavy lifting of what Paul means about worshiping God with an undefiled gospel. And then the last two chapters of the book of Galatians are going to be all about ethics and how we respond to, to the truth of the gospel and in light of the gospel, how we might live. But knowing what it is that actually saves us and that our works and our ethics don't save us, that it's Jesus and Jesus alone that saves us. And so Paul's sharing his story because he wants to make the gospel look great. He wants to make Jesus look great because the churches in Galatia have somewhere along the line been confused and they don't see the beauty of the cross for what it really is. See, these false teachers that had moved into Galatia are saying that, Paul, he's a sellout. 
He's just, he's just sharing that particular message with you because he wants you to like him. You know, it's a, it's a man-made thing. Like what, what Paul is telling you is, is he's just saying that particular gospel to, to, to make you happy and make it, seem, make it seem easier than it really is. But this isn't really what God teaches. And, and you know, so what, what they did is they discredited Paul. They tried to discredit his ministry. And guys, this still goes on today. Right? What, a, a good friend of my wife's um, married a Jewish man. And, and I remember like the process of when she was um, sharing the gospel with him and they attend a, a Messianic Jewish congregation now. But one of his big hang-ups when, when he would have the, the gospel share with him is he's like, I can't accept anything that Paul said. Anything. I can't accept any teachings of Paul because Paul did all these things. And he had this full list of things that, that, of reasons why we couldn't believe Paul. And this is exactly what Paul is dealing with in these churches that he started. He's dealing with a group of people that, that loved him, that knew him, that he was their pastor, that he spent time with them, that he loved them, that he shared meals with them, that he, that he suffered with them, that he broke bread with them. He did all these different things with them. And then these new teachers came in. And said, no, 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 no. What he's teaching you, he was just trying to do that to get your attention and, and to love you. He's, he's just after the praise of man. And he just, wants you, he just wants you to not really understand what God's really doing. And Paul, in his, sharing his testimony that, that, that Bobby read to us earlier, is saying, Mm-mm, my testimony is actually going to prove that the origin of the gospel is not from man. And my message is the one that God has for us. All right, so look at verse 11 with me. Paul says, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. So the first thing he's going to do is lay a framework that his message is not a man-centered philosophy or view of God and what he's done. He says, my message is not man-centered, but it's actually the exact opposite. It's Jesus-centered. And think about this for a second. Why is this important? Beyond beyond just Paul being discredited by these teachers that had moved into Galatia. Paul's saying, look, I'm getting ready to share my story with you because this isn't about me. This is about who God is and how you respond to him and what he's done. And if what I've taught you is true, there's some very important things that come along with that. But if what they're teaching you is true, there's some very important things that come along with that. And Paul's point in saying this is like, look, religious messages born from men's philosophy always lead to works righteousness and the praise of men, not the praise of God. Always. Right? We're going to see that in just a minute in verses 12 through 14. Right? Look at what he says. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. So pause with me here for a moment and think through this. If Paul's detractors are saying... Hey, Paul is just creating a man-made philosophy because it's fluffy and it sounds really good. Think about every other major religion that's man-made or, or man-made philosophy. What do they have in common? Right? Let's think about Hinduism for a moment. Right? The Karmaic tradition of Hinduism teaches that you and I, in order to achieve a higher state and reach nirvana and to, to reach... right. Um, you know, depending on what branch of Hinduism you believe in, um, an eternal state with Vishnu, that you and I need to work off our bad karma and constantly do acts of good karma to be able to reach, right, that eternal conscious state. It it preaches a, 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 a good news about a possibility of eternal consciousness based on our merit. Right? If, if God is at the top of the mountain, you and I are ascending that mountain, working as hard as we can. And whenever I use that illustration, there was a show in the 90s on Nickelodeon right, called Guts. Right? Some of you guys are familiar with that. And I can, I, all I think of is the Astro Crag, right? as they're trying to walk the road. And some of you guys are like, what's Nickelodeon? Right? Right? Look it up. I think there's like an old game show network. It's a great show. I think Mike O'Malley was the host. I would highly recommend it. It's good times. 
right? But this is this idea of we can, we can ascend to the summit of this mountain and climb this mountain on our own through our good works and through our actions that we can, we can slug it away and get to the top of this mountain, right? And when we get there, we will achieve, right, the goal and the, and the highest state of happiness and joy that we can possibly achieve, right? Buddhism teaches something very similar, Right? If you study the, the tenets of Islam, the five pillars of Islam are all about your performance and response to Allah. But it doesn't even have to be a man-made religion. Think about what you and I grew up under as Americans if you grew up in this country. Right? The idea of the American dream. Right? And if you follow politics at all, you've seen the reality of the American dream kind of being crushed and everyone screaming and yelling at one another and blaming the other person instead of trying to find solutions. Right? But the American dream kind of says that you can be anything you want to be in this country if you work hard enough and have enough education. That you don't need to have a bunch of money, you don't need to have all these different things, but if you just work hard enough, you can pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and life's going to be great. And that the, the highest form, right of joy and this life can be achieved with the American dream because we can work together for a national identity that makes much of country, that makes much of capitalism, that makes much of all that we want to do, right? And we could sit down and worship, right? And be excited about our retirement accounts and sending our kids off to the best colleges one day. And we could sit here and be so excited about this. And instead of Vishnu at the top of that mountain or Allah, what we place there is ourselves and this idea of national identity being rooted and the highest thing that we can attain. And so both in those man-made religions and those man-made philosophies, they say, work. Work hard, do good, follow after these things, and if you work hard enough, you will get there and you will arrive. Now think through this for a moment. What do all of those things have in common? They bind you up with slavery to works and actions. Right? If you're going to pursue Hinduism, you are constantly keeping an account of your actions and your works. Right? If you, like a good American, are pursuing the American dream, you are constantly at work trying to slug it out, to climb the corporate ladder, to start your own business, to be the top of the, you know, as they used to say, right, you know, moving over to the east side, keeping up with the Joneses, right, constantly working to achieve, right, this certain level, right, and for most of you guys in here who are students, right, all of you did that in high school to get into the University of Florida. And many of you do it on a daily basis at school, competing with someone else for the best internship, for the best position in your class, for the, for the best job after you graduate, that our lives around us are screamed at constantly, your merit matters. And Paul says, you guys are accusing me of being a man-made religion, and yet every man-made religion points to works righteousness, and yet... The gospel I preached is something completely dif different, right? Look at what he, remember what he says in Romans 1.16. Will you throw that verse up there for me, right? That Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And that's the gospel that he preaches. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew and also to the Greek. Meaning what he's saying there in relation to what we're seeing here in Galatians is he's saying, hey, man-made religion binds you up in slavery, but the gospel of Christ frees you. And it's the power of God unto saving you from yourself and the slavery that we put ourselves under, whether it's in a man-made religion or a man-made philosophy. That only the gospel does this. It's the only thing. And to accuse me, this is Paul, if, to accuse me of this being man-made just because I want your attention, why in the world would I preach what I'm preaching the way that I'm preaching to you? Right? And then what he says in verses 12 through 14 is so important because he's saying, hey, my story actually shows the exact opposite of what you're accusing me of. You're accusing me of creating a man-made religion that's supposed to be freedom but is not really true. But think about this for a second. I was a high-up official in Judaism. I know all about that world. Right? The Judaizers that are moving into Galatia and preaching this message, 
they learned not from Scripture, but from rabbinic tradition. Right? By, the, by the time we are in first century Israel, very, very few leaders are actually using the Torah to teach. They were using a document called the Halakha, which is a collection of interpretations of the law. For those of you guys who are like, what the heck is Kevin talking about here? I have no idea what he means. If you've ever had a study Bible or a commentary, imagine this. Right? If you have a study Bible here this morning, this is basically what this would mean. You would rip out the scripture from your Bible and read only the notes. That's what they were studying. They weren't reading God's word. They were only reading the interpretations of the law. And so what was happening is, is these religious leaders were born in a culture that esteemed the teachings of the rabbis over the word of God. And what came from that was traditions and philosophies that enslaved people to a group of interpretations of the law. And Paul says, okay, so these guys coming to you come from that tradition, and yet I'm telling you, as someone who grew up in that tradition, my revelation came from one place, Jesus himself. Right, go with me to Acts chapter 9. I want to spend a few minutes there looking at what happened to Paul. Acts chapter 9, we're going to read the first nine verses there. It says, but Saul, still breathing threats... And murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Okay, so here's what's going on there. Paul is going to these religious leaders so that he can get execution orders for people that belong to the church of Jesus Christ at Damascus. That's what he's doing. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly, <clears throat> excuse me, a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do the men who were traveling with him stood speechless hearing the voice but seeing no one Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened he saw nothing and so they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus and for three days he was out without sight and neither ate nor drank now why why, why am I sharing this story with you Paul knows the Halakha. He knows the Jewish tradition. He's so steeped in that religion that he's actually persecuting and murdering Christians in an order to protect that tradition and that law. And what changes him? It's not someone coming along and beautifully articulating the gospel of what Jesus Christ has done. And Paul knew who Jesus was. He was well aware of Jesus' ministry and his reputation. But it's not Peter. It's not James. It's not John. It's not Matthew. It's not one of the other eight disciples. Right? Not none of those men meet Paul on the road to Damascus as he's off to kill and persecute Christians. Who does he meet? He meets the resurrected Jesus and his revelation of seeing the resurrected Christ in front of him says, oh my gosh, these people said Jesus was alive again and I've just seen him. Right? Something miraculous happened. And Paul, Paul in sharing this story, he's, he's saying, look, with my experience on the road to Damascus and my experience beforehand, I know all about man-made religions and philosophies. I was advancing beyond my contemporaries. I was extremely zealous. And if you notice back in Galatians chapter 1, notice when he says he's zealous, right? What does he say he's zealous for? He says he's zealous for the traditions of his fathers, not for God. That man-made tradition 
in Judaism led him for a zeal for the approval of his elders, not for God. That, and in that zeal, he sought to please men and be famous. And so he's saying, look, the gospel that I've preached to you is drastically different than the gospel these guys are bringing you. The gospel these guys are bringing you is steeped in man-made religion and tradition and it didn't save me. But the one thing that that life did bring me was a life that was motivated towards religious zeal and religious violence. That my desire to please the elders within the Jewish tradition caused me to actually break the law in order to try to keep the law. Right? This is one of the things, remember when Jesus talked about the weightier matters of the law when he would talk with the Pharisees? And he would say things like, you guys, you know, break the law of trying to help the poor and honor your parents to, to do one little minute area of the law that has been placed in there for you. He's like, you, you guys don't understand it. That You've created all these rules and these traditions to try to keep these really obscure parts of the law. And in trying to keep those obscure parts of the law you actually ignore the weightier and more important matters. Right? When Jesus says that, that, uh, that love your neighbor as yourself and love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength, that those are the, the greatest commandments because all the commandments fall underneath those two. Right? And the Pharisees are constantly at war with Jesus throughout his ministry saying, hey, you know, you're healing somebody on the Sabbath. And, and Jesus is like, wasn't aware that it was illegal in God's eyes to do something good on, on, on his day. Wasn't aware of that. Seems to kind of spit in the face of everything that God wants us to do. That Paul is saying, hey, my zeal in the religious tradition of what man had created in Judaism actually caused me to persecute and kill people unrighteously. That man-made religion created in me a fervor that broke the very law I claimed to defend. And guys, every religious tradition or philosophy that is man-made does this. Right? It's not shocking to me that we see in politics people screaming, we've gotten left behind while another group is saying, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and let's go. Because oftentimes, you pulling yourself up by your bootstraps means you also kick someone else down while you pull yours up. That's how that works. Right? It's, if you follow human history, human history has been littered for centuries of the top trying to keep the bottom oppressed. It just looks a little bit differently in our country. Because it's all man-made and the very things you claim to fight for, which is everyone gets an equal chance, is the very, thing, very things that oftentimes in our own system as Americans and in our culture, we kick down and we beat down with the way we live our lives and the way we do things. Because it's man-made and it's not from God. And if you continue to pursue something like that, you will continue to be enslaved and you will continue to be lost and hopeless. And that's why when you reach my dad's age in his late 50s and you retire and you sit back and you're like, what, do you, what am I doing? I don't know what to do with my life anymore. You go and grab three part-time jobs. Because he was sold a bill of goods that he would find freedom and hope if he worked really hard and worked to retirement age. And now he's sitting around and he's like, I don't, I don't, what, what's, what's to this? What's going on now? I put my kids through college. I have the great house. I retired early. I've got money sitting aside. There's got to be more than this. What's going on? Because he was sold a bill of goods that every one of us is sold. And Paul's saying, if anyone knows how man-made philosophy works, it's me. And look, what I've taught you guys is the exact opposite of that. What I taught you is something completely different. Look at verses 15 through 22. He's going to share the gospel again, but through his testimony of what happened to him. He says, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away 
into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him for 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you, before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. And we have to do something with this, guys, because there's a pretty important theological nugget that we need to pull out of what Paul is, is talking about here. It's this, this idea, this concept of election. And I'm not, not talking about like democratic elections. I'm talking about the idea of, of God choosing to save. Okay, so it's what Paul's talking about here. It's what he's saying. So we're going we're gonna to try to un, unpack this. Okay, now, Paul, remember what we just read in Acts chapter 9, right? That Paul received this message, right, from who? Jesus himself. That Jesus showed up, shows up, showed. Is that, is that proper grammar? I don't think so, maybe. I don't know. That, that, that Jesus shows up on Paul's road to Damascus, right? And Paul says, hey, remember what you, you read about in, in Luke's account of what happened to me? Here's what was going on there. That, that God beforehand, before I ever knew anything that was going on, that, that God set me apart from outside, like, for, like, like before I was even in my mother's womb, God set me apart because he knew me beforehand. Right, and guys, this, is, this teaches us all sorts of things like the value of human life and the sanctity of human life, that, that God has plans for people, right? Like, th- like, I think about my own son, Josiah, who's two, and like he is in the throes of like the terrible twos. Jackie and I laugh because we're like, oh, the twos weren't that bad with Gideon. You know, we know why people say that now, right? We have another two-year-old, and he is the poster child for that very thing, right? And I think about it, and I pray for him, and I'm like, God's got a plan for him. God knows things about what he wants for Josiah and the purpose he's going to serve for him and his kingdom way more than I know what's going on at this point. And Paul's saying, hey, the same thing was true of me, that God had set me apart for something important long beforehand. And then he says this, that God called him. Right, That moment on the road to Damascus that God revealed Christ to him. And we're going to get more on that in a moment. And that in that, then God set him aside for what God called him to do. He's saying, look, the gospel that I shared with you when I came there, the gospel that was written in the first couple of verses of this letter to you, explain that man-centered religion and philosophy teaches you and I that we can get to God. And I said that the gospel is this, God comes to us. That he comes to you and I to rescue us. That while I sought to get to God through my man-made religion and Judaism on the road to Damascus, God came to me and rescued me. Right? Paul says my whole story is the exact opposite of what these men are telling you. The exact opposite. And what happened to Paul, though miraculous, guys, is actually consistent with every disciple and follower of Jesus biblically. Right? When I think back to my own story, I grew up in the church and could not have told you the first thing about what it meant to be a follower of Jesus and what Jesus Christ had done for me. I could have told you stories. I could have told you truths from the Old Testament. I could have told you what was right and what was wrong. But I could not have told you why Jesus came and died on the cross and what that meant for me. And then I look back on my own testimony and I went away to university and I was miserable at that university and then I transferred to another university. And one thing you'll notice, and this is something for you guys to just think about in your own stories. If you are feeling insecure and unsure about something in a particular stage of your life, here is what you tend to do as a human being and what I tend to do. Instead of looking inward, we start looking outward and start blaming everything around us and our surroundings. I'm upset right now. It's my friend's fault. I'm upset right now. It's my church's fault. I'm upset right now. It's my, it's my family's fault. Some, something seems a- abnormal or unusual right now. It must be the university I attend's fault. Right? When we become insecure right, and not knowing what's going on, we start blaming those things around us. And I would say, well, what was going on in my own life at that time is that the gospel of merit 
in schooling and then moving on after school was crumbling under the weight of me not being as smart as I really thought I was. I got to college and realized, oh, like, you have to actually study here. It's kind of important. You U.S. students know exactly what I'm talking about because you never stop studying. Except for those of you that live at Bento. I see you guys checking in all the time on Facebook. <laughs> right, here we go, yeah. That dig in there, right? That's what happens when you friend your pastor on Facebook, right? <laughs> that that, that we, sit, we say, oh, I got to study, I got to study, I got to study, I got to study. And then you study and you're, you're in organic chemistry 7,000 or whatever it is you guys take. And that class starts like falling out from underneath you. And your whole life of wanting to be a doctor is being shredded by one professor who clearly has it out for you. Or a TA, right? And it's easy to blame the school, blame the professor, blame your past education, blame your classmates for dragging you somewhere else when you should have been studying. Blame all these things around you instead of looking inwardly. And and see what God is really doing in this moment. That for me, in his sovereignty, he was allowing me to worship my idols and realize that they were going to fail me miserably. Right? I was a huge WVU football fan, so that's a great reason to pick a university to attend, right? And I know some of you are at UF because you love the football team. And I got there and realized, well, this was kind of a stupid decision. So I transferred thinking that I was going to fix everything and I got to my new university and it was really strange. The problems kept following me because the problems weren't with the university, they were with me. And so I growingly become more and more discontent and in my fight for my love of self, continue to hold on to those things and run after them. And you know what? God kept doing this really annoying thing. He kept putting Christians in my life. My sister was like, you want to go to church with me? What? No. And I got these random roommates, and one of them was a Christian. And I started making friends in classes, and they were Christians. Finally, I eventually went to church just to shut my sister up. And then didn't go back, and then she kept coming after me again, coming after me again. Eventually went back again. And when I went, I heard something different this time. I heard that this Jesus that I'd heard about all this time, that he had actually done something pretty dramatic. He, he came and lived and died so that I wouldn't have to live this perfect life that I was pursuing. That he, that he had done it for me already. And that when, when the Father looked at me, if, if I had accepted what Christ did in his death, burial, and resurrection, that the Father didn't see me, he saw Jesus. And that he accepted me, and that he adopted me, and that I was his son. And I heard that, and I was like, what? This seems to spit in the face of everything else I've ever heard. This can't be true. And the more I tried to run from it, the more it kept getting thrown in my face. Because God was calling after me the same way he called after Paul. And I've heard some of your testimonies in this room, and God works the same way with you. Because the truth of the gospel is that God calls you, you don't run to God. That God calls you the way he called Paul out. And not all of us have that story, right, where we had this aha moment and Jesus came out before us on the road to Damascus. But if you look back on on your testimony and your life and what God has done, it all revolves around God's gracious choice of you unto eternal life and that he called you, he justified you, he sanctifies you, and he will glorify you. That that is what he's going to do. God in his grace chose Paul despite Paul. That's why Paul's sharing this whole story in the first place. He's like, look, if, if God really wanted the best person for the job to start churches in the Gentile world, why in the world would he pick a high-ranking Jewish officer who killed Christians? Makes no sense. Makes no sense that God would do this. And yet God in his grace set me apart before birth. By his grace, he called me out on the road to Damascus and he revealed who Jesus Christ really was to me. And Jesus wasn't some figure in a story that you read about on the pages 
but he became a real resurrected person in front of me. And guys, I'm here to tell you that in my own story, I met Jesus, not just in the pages of a book, but I have a personal relationship with him where I pray for him. He changes me. He convicts me of sin. He asks me to change. He asks me to follow him. He asks me to lay down my own life and surrender it. And as much as I hate that sometimes, it's the best thing for me. Because my man-made religion that I've been steeped in for decades says, run after what you want. And Jesus says, you don't know what you want. You think you do, but it's wrong. You're like a little kid who thinks that playing with knives and climbing in a hot oven is fun. By the way, I'm talking about a real story. I'm talking about my two-year-old. And that I am a, God says, I am a loving father who points you the opposite way. Paul's story as a murderer in the midst of his mess is just one story of what God does when he calls. He calls adulterers. He calls thieves. He calls those who have been stricken by disease. He calls those who have been in the midst of family betrayal. And those who do the betraying. Your story fits into the picture that if you are a follower of Jesus, God loves you and he called you to himself. And that is a miraculous and beautiful story and a beautiful truth that nothing man could create. See, you and I, like Paul, and here's the reality of how we're gonna finish up today. We can spit in the face of what God is doing just like Paul did. But when God calls you according to his grace, it's overwhelming. There's nothing else that matches it. And not only this, I love what Paul says there. Not only did God call him, call him but it pleased him to do so. Right? There's such a tendency amongst us as Christians to think God called me and now he's so disappointed in me. Because I failed here, I failed there, I did this wrong, I did this wrong. And Paul's life is littered with that. And he says, hey guys, God called me. And not only did he call me, it pleases him to do so. It pleases him to save us. It pleases us to draw us to him. That this is the business that God is in, that the gospel is not habit changing. It's not religious changing. It's life-changing. It's life-transforming. That it completely changes the trajectory of your life and where you're going. That everything in our culture is based on merit, school, work, friendships, even dating. Some of you guys, I sit down with you and I'm like, what's going on? You know, what's God doing in your life? What are you dating? You're like, oh, well, you know, here's what I'm looking for in this Lord. And then you're like, you pull out this list and you just drop it down in front of me. You know, she's got to like sports and she's got to read her Bible for at least 30 minutes every day. And she has to like Bethel and Hill songs so that we can go to concerts together. <laughs> you list all these things out and I'm like, could you imagine if we brought your girlfriend into this conversation and let her draw out your list? Dude, you don't mean any of that junk. You're up till four in the morning playing Halo or whatever video game you guys are playing now. Skipping class because you were out doing whatever. That everything is based on merit, even our relationships. And the gospel come al comes along for Paul and for us, and it completely shatters that. You know, for me, I think about what mattered the most. For me, it was sports. I mean, I chose the university I went to because I love football so much. How stupid is that? And my love for sports drove me into the career field that I was going after. And everything that I participated became about competition and winning and there was no other way. You know, what is that famous line that the great philosopher Ricky Bobby says, if you're not first, you're last? Right? Only half of you get that joke because you haven't seen Talladega Nights. Right? But that for me... There wasn't joy in just participate, like, you know, like people get those participation trophies from their kid. I'm like, those are for the losers, right? I got the real one because I beat you. 
I may have cheated and gotten a red card to do it or whatever was necessary, but I'm trying to win, right? And everything was centered around sports and surrendering my life to, to winning. And whatever that took, guys, the gospel came along and shattered that. Right? Sports for me now are, is, for the most part, an opportunity to meet people and share the gospel with them. I play basketball with quite a few guys in this church on Sunday nights when it's warmer. I stink at basketball. This is probably the last sport I would pick. It's the one sport I never played because I couldn't win at it. And it's one of my favorite things to do now because I get to meet people in this city, develop relationships with them, and hope that one day God might give me the chance to share the good news of how Jesus transformed my life. Sports moved from being an idol and the chief thing in my life to being exactly what they were supposed to be in the first place. An opportunity to enjoy this life as God created it and an opportunity to share the glory of God to others. Guys, school is that for you. It's just an opportunity. Work is that. It's just an opportunity. Money is that. It's just an opportunity to glorify God and what he has done and who he is. God is pleased to change you for his glory. And when you start viewing your story through the lens of the gospel and what God has done in your life, you see your story not as a burden, not as your weaknesses, not as something for you to see as your failures and how horrible of a person you are, but you see it as a testimony to what God has done for you so that he can get the glory just like Paul did. The process of how God saves you and calls you is so important to understanding the beauty of who God is. Tim Keller puts it this way. The gospel gives you and I a pair of spectacles through which we can review our own lives and see God preparing us and shaping us. That even through our own failures and sins, God uses that so that we might become vessels of his grace. Meaning God saves you not for your own glory so that you can become the best Christian in your Bible study, in your church, in your city, in your country and have fame and honor brought to you but he saves you so that you can bring him glory and enjoy life abundantly. Guys, Paul shares his testimony to do one thing and that's to stir our affections for God and who he is why he's writing this letter to the Galatians. It's like you guys are running after things, rituals, religion. Realign your heart and your affections towards God and what he's done. God's elected. God's called you. God's called you to serve him the same way he called me and set me aside to preach to the Gentiles. He gave, he gave me purpose. It's not sports. It's not just medicine. It's not just business. It's not just teaching. It's not just speech pathology. Whatever, whatever career field you're going to seek. God's purpose is that you exist to make much of him and worship him. And in whatever your vocation might be, your changed life can be a shouting board and a springboard to his glory and what he's done. Paul's testimony is an example of what the gospel does. It changes lives and has an external impact on everybody. Look at what Paul says it does as we finish up chapter one. They, that's the churches that he had formerly persecuted. So they were afraid of Paul. They only were hearing it said, he he used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And what did they do? And they glorified God because of me. They glorified Paul. They're like, man, I'm so glad Paul came to our side. They glorified the God that called Paul. So as we wrap up here this morning, we're going to do what we do every Sunday. We're going to pause and reflect. We're going to come up. We're going to take communion, right? I'm going to invite you, if you are a follower of Jesus, to come up and partake of communion this morning, right? And remember the magnitude of what Jesus has done, 
That as you take communion, you're remembering that is Christ's flesh and blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. That is what that extended offer is to you and to me. If you're not a believer here this morning, first of all, thank you for being here. We invite you not to take communion, right? Because it's, it's a ritual that should mean something. And if you haven't accepted what Christ has done, it doesn't mean anything for you. I would invite you to instead sit there and reflect. Reflect on what we talked about this morning. Right? I, I used that term election earlier and that, that God is calling. And you're like, how do I know if I'm elect? How do I know if God's calling me? I would say if you're not a believer here this morning or if you thought you were a believer when you walked in here this morning and we're talking about the gospel and what we believe and tearing down false idols and pursuing after God and God alone. And you're like, I don't really know if that's me. It is not a coincidence that you are here this morning, right? I've lived life long enough to know that there is no such thing as coincidence. Right? Was it a coincidence that Paul just happened to be on the road to Damascus to kill Christians? And the resurrected Christ just showed up on the road to Damascus? Was it a coincidence that everything that I was pursuing was the very things that I was angry about and caused me to go to another university where I could not get away from people that love Jesus, no matter how hard I tried? And that even in the midst of the summer after my sophomore year of college, when there was no one in my college town, I was for some strange reason going to church by myself when I was the only person living in my apartment. Was it an accident or was it God calling me? Calling me because he loved me. Calling me because he wanted to know the extent of what he had done to save me and you. You're not here by accident this morning. What's been going on around you, the random friend that invited you to church, the random friend who's been pursuing you, God wants to change your past from an I am to an I used to be. Because that's what the gospel does. I would invite you to sit, reflect, pray. Say, God, why am I here? Meet me here. Are you real? Is this stuff that Kevin's talking about reality? Is Kevin right? Do I, do I really worship something? Do I, do I worship the American dream? Do I worship sports? Do I worship career? Do, what, do, what do I worship? Am I like Paul, worshiping religion? God, help me to know that Jesus is enough. That the gospel was better than all these things. Christians here this morning, before you take communion, do what I asked you to do last week. Do the hard work of asking yourself the question of what idols do I run to? God, reveal them to me. Am I running to the idol of performance? Am I running to the idol of acceptance? Am I running to the idol of being above my peers? Am I running to the idol of the American dream? God, lay them out before me. Christian, repent of them. Your God is mighty to save and forgive and then come up and take communion, not sad and ashamed that that stuff's been revealed before you, but joyfully thanking God because his grace is enough to forgive you again and again and again and again. That you might worship him and enjoy him because that's what the gospel is all about. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the life of Paul. Thank you that Paul, in his letter to the churches of Galatia, does the exact thing we need, which is turn us from hero worship to God worship. We have a tendency to deify people in the Old Testament and heroes of the faith and say, look at them, I need to be like them, I want to be like them. And Paul says, don't be like me. Look at what Jesus did for me. God, as we sit here and reflect in this time, meet us and stir in us a desire to love you, to want to seek you and you alone and make much of you. Father, remind us of our hopelessness 
but also remind us of your great love for us in Jesus Christ. Father, you're amazing. Thank you that we can know you and love you personally and in community. And I ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.